0: But, you know, it's like anything where things ebb and flow. And I think one of the things I learned during that and one of the things I saw, you know, when we were in the middle of the Kellen Moore era, I was like, man, a lot of my income is dependent on Boise State football. It did not seem sustainable for the long term, which is why at that time I really started looking at how how can I diversify? Because at, at that time, you know, so much of my business and income was based around just the stores. And and then even more specifically, the Blue and Orange store at that time, because it was our best store. And it just, I looked at it and I was like, this this isn't smart, like this isn't sustainable. Like I'm gonna ride this while I can, and it's been great, but it's not it's not long-term sustainable. It also, you know, is interesting as a fan, because I'm a very passionate fan, as, as you know, it's like the double-edged thing with me though, where it's like, at that time, you, you think back to when we lost that game at Nevada um, and had the chance to go you know, to the Rose Bowl or, or even the national championship game. Like the impact on me as a fan was so devastating, but then there's also this business impact. Like it, it cost us literally like probably a million dollars in sales. And so that was pretty emotionally like difficult. It was tough. I mean, it, so that was the day after Thanksgiving. Right. That game, right. and that day we had our highest sales day that we, you know, it's Black Friday, but right. it's also the right. game, and this, you know, it's a big deal. We had our highest sales we'd ever had, and then that night we would lose, and it was it was so devastating. And and again, like it's both. Like it's not just the financial impact. Like in a lot of ways, it actually is worse the fan impact, just because you know I care so much as a fan but then you, you add the financial impact on top of it. And so that, that was a big moment as well where I was just like, I can't, I can't live and die like this. And so I've got I've to gotta diversify.
1: Travis Hawk started his career very young at 11 years old. From that time until now, he has worked to build a number of successful businesses, including a run at a high level government job in DC. Follow Travis as he tells of the ups and downs of owning a sports store tied to a football team, as well as the political roller coaster of a presidential campaign. The Founders Podcast. Listen to the stories of how everyday extraordinary people start amazing businesses, hear how they overcome the odds and find success in the entrepreneurial world, the up and down, the good and the bad, and everything in between. And now, your hosts, Jordan Hansen and Brandon Minard.
2: Hello. Hello. And Welcome, everyone, to the Founders Pod. My name is Brandon Miner, and I'm with my co-host, Jordan Hansen. Jordan, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. How about you?
2: Good. Uh, We're in studio broadcasting from the United Commercial Insurance Studios. Our guest today is well-known throughout not only Idaho, but all over the great nation and country. Uh, He's a successful entrepreneur, a seed investor, a fundraiser, a business strategist, and a problem solver extraordinaire. Uh, he currently serves as the managing partner of Capital 11 and Capital Auto Loan, also as chairman of the Sports Fan Group, as fund manager uh, for C11-related investments, and as a board member, mentor, and advisor to multiple portfolio companies. Our guest today is Travis Hawks. Travis, welcome to the Pod.
0: Awesome. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation.
2: Yeah. So we're excited to, to get your story and learn more about, you know, I've been following Travis for a long time. Actually, he had an employee named Brandon Miner.
0: Still do. Yeah, often often confused Yes, uh, because it's very close. close Yeah,
2: and we've always followed each other around in our life, me and Brandon Miner, oddly enough. But um, I particularly enjoy following Travis on Twitter because I'm also a Boise State fan. And whenever I'm watching a game and I have, like, an emotion about a play, I'll log on to Twitter and Travis will have hit that emotion, right? And so it's like, like, share, like, it's like – exactly the point I'm trying to make. So a lot of frustration in recent years, but previously it wasn't always the same, um, but really active on Twitter and it's fun to kind of watch watch that. So anyway, to get started, we're going we're gonna to jump in and Travis, if you could spell out, we'd like to um, introduce our listeners into what it is that Capital 11 does and what you do for Capital 11 and, and how would you explain that to someone who knows nothing about it?
0: yeah it's it's sometimes tricky to explain when people ask what I do because it's there's a lot going on but um I think in in simpler form uh, we're an investment company and we uh, you know own companies as well as invest in companies and in projects you know we do some real estate investment development as well um, so yeah it's it's just grown into multiple things and some of those companies were operating and, and others were just investing in and mentoring. So we, we stay busy.
2: And is it similar to, is it angel investing or is it venture capital investing or what would you classify it as one or the other?
0: Yeah, I'd say, um, when we started doing, uh, kind of the investment, other companies, it was, it was more like angel investing, but it's evolved now more to venture capital investing. So the size of, um, you know, checks we're writing and the and the, the role that we're playing with these companies, uh, it's it's most similar to to venture capital.
1: Okay. So uh, my mother is probably going to listen to this, and she doesn't know the difference probably between angel investing and venture capital. Can you kind of delineate maybe and maybe yeah, just help out people both with like numbers typically where those checks range yeah. from angel and venture capital, and also what those roles are.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, first of all, hi to your mom. So I'm there glad she's listening. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, so, and, and with the, you know, with this side of our business, which, which we can get into as we get into all the background, really just in the last three and a half years did we start doing this, this part kind of the, the venture part. Um, but the, the real difference mm-hmm. is angel investing tends to be, uh, very, very early, uh, in, in a company's life cycle and generally kind of smaller checks, meaning, anywhere from 25,000 to 50 to 75,000. And, uh, it's, it's very gen- generally, uh, much more passive, you know, as far as, Hey, here's, here's a check, you know, believe in you hope, you know, hope this can be helpful. Thoughts and prayers. Yeah. Thoughts and prayers. Let me know how it goes. Again, there's exceptions. There's, there's some angels that are more active, uh, you know, in the, in the role of the company and that's great. When you get into more traditional venture, which which within itself has a lot of different uh, segments, um, those those checks tend to be bigger. I mean, at this point, we're generally investing in the uh, kind of two hundred thousand to a million dollars, kind of in a first investment in a company, and we're just more actively involved. So, uh, in some of these companies, we have board seats. Um, we're having you know, regular meetings and check-in calls with the companies. We're helping them solve problems. Uh, in some cases, our internal uh, CFO is acting as their fractional CFO. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're just bringing kind of more resources um, to the table and then also uh, have the plan to invest uh, you know, as, as things progress. So as they do future financing rounds, you know, we'll, we'll add on to those. So um, we, we got really into this in the last, you know, as I mentioned, few years, um, really under the thesis that Boise is a great place to invest uh, in venture for the next, you know, 15 to 20 years. It's a undersaturated market from a capital perspective, so that yields more opportunity. And, um, you know, also just the, the fact that I've lived here my whole life and have a lot of relationships, you know, we, we have good deal accessibility. We, we don't invest exclusively in Boise, probably about 70% of our, our portfolio are Idaho companies and about 30% are outside of Idaho and somewhat, you know, geographic agnostic, if that makes sense. Sure. I have a
1: few follow-on questions. The first is, you know, I hope that this podcast is listened to by people who are aspiring entrepreneurs that maybe they can get inspired by different stories. Um, if they were interested, what would that look like for them? Like, would you want what kind of companies like what industries would you be looking for and also what are these terms like are we you know percentage wise is it i mean i know that's going to vary largely by company but if you're talking angel and venture capital what percentage do you typically take
0: yeah those are those are great questions so for us we're we're mainly focused on um, you know, SaaS tech companies.
1: And that's software as a service for, yeah.
0: Yes. And so that's our, that's our primary focus, but we make exceptions and we've, we've invested in companies that don't, don't fit that. Um, and then, you know, as far as terms and percentages and stuff, those, those are always obviously negotiable with, with the founders. We, we are really focused on being entrepreneur friendly and protecting the entrepreneur and, and not putting them in a, in a position where they, they make a bad deal Um, generally, we we believe that, you know, when you do a a fundraising round like that, you shouldn't take more than, you know, 10 to 20% dilution. So we're not coming in and trying to get 50% of the company or anything. You're saying
1: at the venture capital side, right? Correct. Not the angel.
0: Yeah, angel can angel is is, crazy, right? Wild is the wild, wild west, right? Mm -hmm. So those those terms can be all over all over the map and what they are. But Generally we're investing in seed rounds. Sometimes we take the whole seed round. Sometimes we take part of the seed round. And generally you're looking at anywhere from a 10 to 20% dilution for the founders. And and the the range really depends on, you know, how it's just math. How much how much money do they need and, and where can we justifiably put the valuation of the company? You know, some companies they they need a lot of capital to do what they're gonna do. And so they're gonna have to take more dilution because they need more capital. Others, you know, can get by with less capital, and so they can take less dilution, or, or they've already got enough traction that they can get a little higher, you know, higher valuation.
1: So one final question: Yeah, let's say really good company, they come to you. It's a beautiful SaaS. They have monthly recurring revenue coming already, but they are from U of I and they're U of I fans, (laughs) you know, how does that factor
2: in? Beautiful sass, but U of I. That's right. But U of I, that's a tough decision.
0: It's not a tough decision. (laughs) We're we're not going to hold that against anybody. And it's, it's fine. We, uh, we, we try and keep, uh, you know, religion, politics and college football out of the, out of the term discussion. (laughs) The three big (laughs) ones. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You know, but that dynamic has, it seems to me has gone like diluted a lot over the years. Because we don't really play
0: each other very right.
2: much, and yeah, it's sure. just not a big
0: to it's, me. It's not what it used to be. I mean, I grew up, uh, you, you know, during the worst part of that, which was when you know Idaho beat us, whatever. I think thirteen years in a row, and yeah. kids at uh, elementary school used to make fun of me for being a Boise State <laughs> fan. And, I, I You're mean, those, a disadvantaged, poor young yeah, Boise State. Those guy. were those were dark <laughs> times, and so you, you know it's it's still meaningful to me because of that of that pain I went through as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think to a lot of fans, like, they don't even, you know, they, they don't have any of those scars, and, and it hasn't hasn't been a competitive series for many years. Yes. And it's now, been 15 or like, 20 years since play. they played each other. Yeah, yeah, we're not even playing at this point. Football, anyway. Well,
2: well, so let's let's start on that. You know, you mentioned you were born and raised here?
0: Yeah, yeah, lived my whole life in Boise. I think there's uh, less and less of us left that mm-hmm. are, you know, just born and raised, lived our whole lives here. But, yeah, grew up in, in West Boise and uh, went to – or a high school, and then uh, went to Boise State, graduated from the business school.
2: Gotcha. So let's back up a bunch then. So your family, your dad and your mom and whoever, was it a big family? Did you have a lot of siblings, a lot of brothers and sisters? How did that work out?
0: Yeah, so one older brother and two older sisters, and I'm quite a bit younger um, than any of my siblings, so I'm seven years younger than the next closest Mm -hmm. sibling, which is my brother, so I had kind of an interesting, you know, experience growing up where when I was, you know, young, uh, you know, real young siblings in the house, but really for a lot of my teenage years, kind of grew up more like a only child environment because everyone else was out of the house. Um, my parents, uh, they they met in Pocatello. They moved here in 1969, uh, which... Big big win for me. Like nothing against Pocatello, but sometimes I think, like, man, what if I'd just been born and grew up in Pocatello? I, I don't know. I don't know. What Could that, have expanded Chubbuck or yeah, I don't <laughs> somewhere up. Uh, that would look. That's like. Funny. But, yeah. but yeah, they moved here in 1969. Obviously, Boise was a very different place then. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, that's that's. Where so I
2: grew up. most people may know a part of what your father did, but maybe explain. He moved here. What what was his job at the time and most of your youth growing up, what did your parents do?
0: Yeah. So, um, my dad, uh, from a very young age, essentially right when he got out of high school, he went to work, um, in the car business and, uh, he worked for a dealership over in Pocatello first in the, uh, parts department and was, was kind of doing that. And then one day decided he wanted to sell cars. And so he went to the GM and asked if he could sell cars and the G- GM said, yeah, that's fine, but if you're not good at it and doesn't work out, I'm not giving you your parts job back. And he said, that's fine. And the first day he sold cars, you know, he made more money than he'd made, like, in a month in the parts department. My dad was a natural salesperson, a natural people person. And so he he did, and he, and he was very driven. And so he um, was very successful um, in selling cars and did that. And ultimately, the reason he moved to Boise um, in 1969 was to open his own uh, used car dealership. And so he did that. Uh, back at that time, he had a, a business partner. Um, great, great story in that at, at some point, they mutually determined it wasn't the best fit for them to be partners, but they both wanted to uh, stay at the dealership. You know, they both wanted to keep the existing dealership, not not be bought out. And so they decided to flip a coin um, to see who, who got to be bought out, who, who got to stay. You're kidding. And this, this was very much my dad his whole life. He loved to, you know, flip coins for, for deals and things like that. But he actually lost um, the coin toss. And so he was bought out and he went to a, a different part of, of town and opened his own dealership. And, and from that time forward, he, he didn't have a partner. So no more reason to have coin flips. So is that other partner, is he still,
2: is that business still around that you know of? No,
0: no. I mean, that was, that was, you know, long time ago. And I I was,
2: I I was thinking you'd say like, yeah, it was Lithia Ford or like, (laughs) or Kendall Auto.
0: No, he, he, I think later got out of the, out of the business and my, my dad ended up later getting that same location back and there's a lot of history there, but, but yeah, so that's, um, you know, that's what my dad did Um, and, and what I grew up with, I, I always, I tell people sometimes that, um, it wasn't until after I was married that I found out that not everybody works six days a week and works on Saturdays. So my dad always works Saturdays and he works six days a week. And, uh, I remember when I first got married, it was Saturday and I was getting ready to go to work. And my my wife was like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going to work. And she's like, well, why are you working today? And I was like, why wouldn't I work today? (laughs) And she had grown up with a, you know, with a dad who worked Monday through Friday. And it, it honestly, like it never occurred to me that I wouldn't work Saturdays and six days a week. And my dad set a great example of being a really hard worker, um, you know, being very driven and, you know, putting in the putting in the time. Like I, I grew up, he was a great dad and always there. I don't want to give the impression he wasn't. But I also grew up like, like I knew like, hey, if he, he may not be home for dinner, right? If things are busy at work, that's how it goes. He's, he's, he's a business owner. He's, he's an entrepreneur. He may not be home for, for dinner. He comes home when he can come home. And that's how I grew up. And so that was very normal to me. I never I never at all thought that that was not normal. I think I thought that's how it was for everybody.
1: Yeah, that's funny. I, you, your dad has some influence on my family as well because my wife actually, uh, in a church capacity, he would visit them once a month. In our church, we call it home teacher at mm-hmm. the time, and he. My wife said that every month he would bring her a new Beanie Baby, mm. so she had like, I mean, and he never missed a month, so she had like twelve dozens of Beanie Babies, <laughs> all from your dad, Bill yeah. Hawks. So, good. yeah,
0: gen- generous guy and yeah. and a great you know uh, person. He he passed away a few years ago, and that obviously was difficult. But one of the things that was cool about that was just hearing from so many people yeah. the influence he had and hearing stories that I had never you know, heard before. Um, So, so he was, he was definitely a huge influence, you know, as you can tell. And I I think one thing, especially both him and my mom, um, I I think a big influence they had on me is they, whatever I told them that I wanted to do or thought I could do, um, they would always be like, yeah, okay, like go do that. Like they never, I mean, I've had crazy ideas for sure. They still have crazy ideas, but they never once said you shouldn't do that. Like that's a crazy idea. That's a bad decision. That's too risky. Whatever. Like they were always like, "Yeah, I think you can. I think you can do do whatever you set your mind to." That was their mentality, and I think I think that made a big difference. Like I think about that a lot with the the path I've taken, the risks I've taken, the businesses I've started, all those things. I think that 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 did have an impact on me. That it, it never seemed abnormal and I didn't get negative feedback um, from them or, or really anyone important to me. I didn't yeah. get, you know, my, my wife, friends, like I always have been kind of surrounded by people that were like, yeah, we think you can do that. Yeah.
2: So I want to focus back when you were growing up. Yeah. Um, your dad owned a car lot yeah and hawks motors just yes yeah. is that I what it was put that together so
0: it, so it originally was called uh bill <coughs> hawks house of hard tops was it was it was Oh, <laughs> no, pretty good oh that okay gotcha Remember the, the old, house of hard the house of hard tops <laughs> yeah that was what it was originally called and then um yeah in the early 90s he changed it to hawks motors in in part um because if my brother or myself wanted to kind of get in the business, it was, you know, kind of taking his name off and making the family name.
2: That, and if you wanted to sell a convertible. Yeah. Right. You (laughs) kind of had to like change that up, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so the house of hard top, which I like, by the way, which was kind of a cool spin on it. But when you were growing up, was it, okay, hey, all hands on, on deck, we're all going to the lot to wash cars or change oil or whatever. I mean, was that a big part of your youth or did you have other jobs?
0: Yeah, no, good question. So I uh, de- definitely when I was younger, um, you know, kind of prior to the age of 12, um, would would go there many Saturdays. And a big thing I would do was vacuum out cars, which I hated. Like that was terrible. And uh, it probably gave me some aversion to the car business a little bit. But I would, um, you know, vacuum out cars and, and help kind of do things around the lot. But for sure, uh, you know, my parents always felt like, you know, I needed to, you know, work and have some of that exposure. Um, you know, so my dad had always been in the car business, um, but he was looking for kind of a, uh, I I wouldn't call it a side hustle because it was kind of more than that, but looking for a, an additional business. And when I was 12, uh, my dad opened um, the first pro image sports store here in the valley and he he knew so you know people that haven't been here a long time don't know the history of boise was like one of the last you know cities of its size to not have a mall and it was kind of a joke for a long time that like i mean salt lake had like seven malls and we didn't have have a mall and there's a long history behind why that was. But finally, the mall was was going to be built. The mall opened in 1988. My dad kind of saw that as an opportunity. He was in Utah, went in a, a pro image um, store, and it, it just clicked with him. Like, because, you know, we were big sports fans. Uh, at that time, if, if you, you know, I grew up a big Lakers fan, a big Cubs fan. If you wanted that kind of stuff, like, you, you kind of had to go to to the city, you know, to get it or to a game or maybe the Sears catalog or something, and so here he was in Utah and he brought me home like a Lakers hat and a Lakers T shirt. He was like, "This makes all the sense in the world." Uh, They were a brand new; they just started franchising, and so he got the franchise rights for for Boise with the idea that he would open, um, you know, in the mall. And so he opened a store actually first out in Nampa at the Karcher Mall just to kind of learn the. The business and start to build up some customers. But then with the idea that when Boise Town Square opened, um, he would move in there. So that was cool. Um, you know, I have memories of being inside the Boise Town Square Mall before it had opened when it was under construction. I actually got to skip school. I was in seventh grade and I got to skip school the day the mall opened and work at the mall. And it was it was crazy. Like there was Uh, there was a video that came out that someone found like in the last couple of years that showed it, but I mean, there's thousands and thousands of people at the mall, but I worked at the mall. Um, and so that really was the job I had, um, you know, through junior high and high school. And, and it was awesome. And and one of the things we laugh about is when we had the store at Karcher mall, I was 11 years old and I would work in the store and my parents would leave and go get dinner or something. And I would, I would be left in the store by myself. And I, new i mean there was no cash register like you would write down what people bought you would calculate the sales tax but i was really good at that i had a really good kind of numbers mind and people would walk in the store and they'd kind of look around and they'd say is, is anyone working and i'd be like yeah i'm working and they're like you work here because i'm 11 and they're like yeah i'm like yeah can i help you do you want i mean you want to buy something and i, I could count out the change and and the whole thing and so that's what I grew up doing, and it was it was awesome. You know, the lessons learned. Um, when I was in high school, I did the payroll um, and calculated all the withholdings. I mean, this was before all this was automated, yeah. right? So I did all those withholdings. Um, I got put in charge of the, the posters, and so I would go in and, you know, restock the posters and order them. And it, it was great lessons because, like, I would go to my dad and I'd say, like, you know, I want to order 10,000 posters so we never run out. He'd be like, well problem is you order 10,000 posters, you get to pay for 10,000 posters. If it's going to take us three years to sell those, that, that doesn't make sense. And he kind of explained that to me. So having that experience through junior high and high school was, was phenomenal and, and really made me fall in love with small business because I learned that you're involved in everything, right? You're involved in hiring. You're involved in buying. You're involved in, you know, negotiating leases. You're involved in all the things that come with employees, um, vendors, et cetera. And so you, you get this wide, you know, wide swath of, of experiences and responsibilities.
2: That, that's crazy to me. I mean, I can imagine dropping my 11 year old off and being like, okay, like hold it down. <laughs> He'd probably like fall asleep or something.
1: I this mean, is like, I, like 1980, 1990, like right th- now, like, so I mean, na- did you have a calculator?
0: Um, yeah, we had, we had a little adding machine, but, you know, back then the sales tax was 5% uh-huh. and we did prices all even numbers, not like oh, the 99. Okay. So most of them I could just figure out in my head, yeah. but there was a little adding machine. But this was the mall opened in 1988, and we opened out in Carter Mall in uh, 1986. So that's when 86 when that was. is when you were working. Out, uh-huh, out Eleven. So when I was 11.
1: And Brandon and I have I have a 12 year old. You have a and Bridges. Bridge 12. Just turned 12. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I just can't. I <laughs> meant, wouldn't. I wouldn't put him. <laughs> that's good experience
2: though. I mean, that's Such incredible. Experience.
0: Yeah. It was yeah. awesome.
2: Maybe that's just a different time. But so, question: When when your dad or when you were growing up and you were involved in a couple different businesses, was it? You know, your dad telling you, OK, hey, Travis, I really want you to join me. I really want you to go in and take over whichever one, the the motors or the or did you have any guidance and direction from your dad? Did he let you do whatever you wanted as far as your future?
0: Yeah. So I, I, with him, he he very much it was clear that those pathways were there. Right. And he would talk about like that. Those were options, you know, that I could work in the car business that I could work in the, in the sports store business that I could one day own those things or whatever. But, but also, you know, it was very clear that if that's not what I wanted to do, that that was fine as well. There certainly wasn't any pressure, you know, to do that or expectation to do that. It was kind of like, Hey, whatever you want to do, you should go do.
2: Were your siblings ever, I mean, was there a front runner there, you know, cause you have an older brother, or even when you're, when your sisters get married, Sometimes they bring in
0: a husband or an in law that would want to get involved. A crown prince, you're looking yeah. for like a, a crown, crown prince. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, Who's the crown prince. Yeah. yeah, so, so it not really with my sisters. Um, one of my sisters, her her husband is a CPA, and that's what he always wanted to do. So he had never shown interest in that path. The other one, you know, has always lived out of state, and and you know they kind of wanted to do their their own thing. My brother, um, you know, I, I spent some time working in the stores, spent some time working in the in the cars. And, and ultimately it just, it kind of just worked out on its own that my, my brother liked the car business and ultimately wanted to do that, which is, you know, so he, he does that now and, and, you know, eventually bought out Hawks Motors. And for me, I, I wasn't interested in the car business. I, I, uh, when I was in college, I would go sell cars when they do the offsite sells and, and I, I was good at it. Like I was good at selling cars but I didn't love it, and I especially didn't love, like, the downtime. You know, you, you, can, you can be at the car dealership, and especially if it's, like, raining or windy, you might go, like, six hours without a customer. And that just drove me crazy. Like, it just it wasn't the right, the right fit for me. Um, I, I Later, as, as we'll, we'll get into it, it was kind of circled back uh, into the car business on the lending side. But it, it wasn't of interest to me to kind of take over that dealership. But the, the store I loved, my dad never wanted to go beyond one location because, you know, he's busy in the car business. Um, but I loved the store for all the reasons I talked about, plus being a sports fan, and, and I really enjoyed it. And so when I was going to college, um, I went to him and said, like, hey, I really love, love this business. Like, I'd like to one day buy you out, but I'd also like to expand this, the stores and have more than just one store. And so it was actually while I was in college that um, we, you know, started the the first expansion and opened a couple stores in Utah. And so that was an experience as well, because that was that was different from one store, you know, in your backyard versus now you've got a you're out of state, you're hiring people out of state, you know, all those things. But uh, that's what I did while I was in college. I was going to school full-time and working full-time, including, you know, traveling and running those stores. So that was a lot. Where'd you go to school? Boise State. Okay. And
2: so franchises, I'm assuming are different when your dad signed the first franchise to the a typical franchise deal now. And I'm assuming they, you just, you had freedom to go out and solicit other pro image uh, locations or open up new areas, or, I mean, were there, there were no real restrictions there for you guys?
0: Well, there were restrictions, but we, we've always had a great relationship with those guys, and, you know, I had grown up in the business, and so, yeah, I mean, certainly in those days when I was in college, my dad was, was still signing those, those franchise agreements, and, and, you know, we went out and got a bank loan, and, you know, my dad uh, signed on that bank loan, and, um, but, but I, I had saved up some money, and, and had some, some some crazy things happen um uh, with with some stocks and things but i i put all the money i had in um and then wait all, you kind of just skimmed over yeah, that i want to hear we more, more about the crazy that. things <laughs> yeah so um i i had so i had a goal when i was a kid i had a goal that i wanted to buy a bmw when i was in high school which i didn't do by the time i actually had gotten to high school, I was like, this is a dumb idea for a few reasons. So I didn't do it. But I was very passionate about saving money. And so I saved a lot of, of money. And, you know, I worked from the time I was 10 years old. And I, I just was a saver. I saved a lot of money. And then when I was about 16, um, I got a, a stock account, you know, through through my dad. And my dad let me, you know, decide on my own trades and things. And so that was a great experience. And then, after I graduated from high school, I left uh, for two years to to serve a, a church mission and I just told my dad um, hey you 're in charge of this stock account for for two years and uh, I never asked about it. He never told me about it um, when I left, there was about twenty thousand dollars in it, and he had while I was gone he had gotten uh, <laughs> he'd gotten the uh a stock tip. I, I don't want it to sound like insider trading, but he had gotten a, a pretty good stock tip and uh, and had done really well. Um, and so I came home and I'd been home two or three days, had not even thought about this account. And I came in my room and there was an envelope on my bed and it was the statement from from Prudential, which is where the, the account was. And I opened it up it was like a hundred and five thousand oh so dollars. Five X. Yes. Wow. So he five X'd it in two years, <laughs> which which was really lucky. And my my dad, um, definitely a risk taker and kind of a gambler, and I will say over his life, like that was not common with yeah. his yeah. his stock trades. Um, but just super fortunate. And so, you know, that was a lot of money, and especially at that time. Uh, And I put 100 percent of it into the business um, as kind of, you you know, to get some ownership and to kind of put skin in the game and say, like, I'm I'm all in on this because my dad was he was cautious on opening multiple stores and and going into, um, you know, other markets and things. And so this was part of me kind of putting my money where my mouth was. And so I did that as well as, um, was that hard?
1: Do you feel like you're a risk taker or are you more conservative?
0: No, I'm definitely a risk taker. Okay. So for you, was it hard? You're like, no, I'm risk taker.
1: Kind of believe in yourself and it it, wasn't
0: hard at all. And that's the thing. It's back to like, you kind of think everyone's like you until you realize that they're not like, it did not, it did not give me any pause because I was so confident in, in what, what, what I was going to do. I was so confident it would be a success and, this is how I am and it's for good and for bad and it's both. But I was just so confident that this would be successful. It gave me no pause to just Mm -hmm. say, yeah, I'll put all this money in because I believed it would be successful. Were you married at the time or were you, were you? Yes. Yep. Just, just had got married at that time. And so, you know, during that those, those four years I was in school, Working full time, going to school full time, got married, and had my first daughter. So and your wife's like, time. "Hey, you know, we don't have to give all this money away." <laughs> or house what would you- be nice. Yeah, <laughs> you know, my wife. It, you know, it's it's kind of like what I said earlier, where I've just been surrounded by these people that that believe in me. Like she she didn't put up resistance. She was like, if you know, she she believed in me, and and it, that wasn't an issue.
2: What were you studying? You said you studied business in college.
0: Yep. Was there a, a specific area of it or was it just? So I knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I knew I wanted to be a business owner. Um, I never, never thought that I wanted to go work in corporate America or in a certain field or, you know, go be an accountant or anything like that. And so I just got like a, a business management degree with the idea that that would expose me to multiple things um, everything from, you know, economics to human resources. I felt like all those things would be helpful. And, and it was. The, w- the one thing I'll say, we, we can talk about the value of college later, but the, the one thing I would say is what was most valuable to me really was the financial stuff, right? And so really, as, as when you're young, if you can learn those skills around, pro formas and financials and and just really understands how financials work. It's a huge advantage and and super critical. I think it puts you at a big disadvantage if you can't do those things and you're a business owner.
2: Well, and I think you had a unique experience because most of the jobs that someone have or has growing up is just doing the labor, the grunt work, and they don't see the back end side of it. Whereas you were taking money that would directly affect the The sales reports in the store on a day-to-day basis. I mean, that, that's such an incredible experience. Um, so you were basically off to the races. Yeah. And so you had a vision where you said, okay, Dad, I want to, I really want to open more and more and more stores. And, and were you just thinking Utah's the first stage of that? Or, I mean, what was your goal there? What What did you have in mind?
0: Yeah. I mean, that was the goal was we, we saw some opportunity in, in Utah. And obviously it's it's close. Um no, no people there, et cetera. And so, yeah, we opened uh, a couple stores down there and, um, and, and that, that was it. I mean, now, you know, now I have a lot of stores, a lot that have opened just in the last few years, but back for a very, very long time, it was just really running those four stores. And that was a lot. And it was a lot from a capital perspective. You know, we didn't have unlimited funds despite the money I put in. And, you know, we went and borrowed, uh, $250,000, you know, from the bank. Um, but, you know, that's, that's kind of what we had the capacity to, to do at that time. And then we just had to go out and operate. And it, it's, I, I don't want to give the impression that it was uh, easy, you know, by any means, or just uh, overnight success, because it wasn't. And I, I think that one thing that I really respect about small business owners, and have been through myself is, like, I've I've had those times laying in bed at night, like, trying to figure out if I'm going to be able to meet payroll and what I always tell people about you know when you own your own business is you get paid last right and so sometimes that can be really good and other times that can be really bad and so I mean there was times when like I couldn't really pay myself because of you know where where businesses was at where sales were at time of year whatever else and so um you know as as much success as is happening now like I went through those times of of the weight and the stress and like oh my gosh like am I gonna make it? Am I gonna have to lay people off? Am I gonna be able to pay myself? Do I have to you know go tell my wife like there's no money? You know those are stressful things that I think that most small business owners go through. And I, I uh, something I heard a long time ago that is very true is there's nothing better than being a small business owner as long as the cash flow is good. And, and that's true because it is great. You're your own boss. You have the freedom, the flexibility, like there's so many great things about it, but if the cash flow isn't good, it's miserable. Right. And, and that's, you know, I've experienced both of those things. What year was this that you started expanding into Utah? Uh, So this would have been kind of 98, 99. And then,
2: so and you said, did Pro Image start out of Utah, or mm-hmm. where?
0: Yeah, it started. The, the The guys who started it were from Utah, and the franchise office is still in Utah. And they started in kind of eighty five, eighty six.
2: And to our listeners, the Pro Image in Boise is still running. Oh yeah, yeah. And yeah. so you were there from eighty eight to current day. I mean, two thousand twenty two. Impressive.
0: Rigid, yeah, original tenant at Boise Town Square, and and yeah, it's it's been it's been great. Um, I, you know, I don't know if, if we're skipping ahead too far, but you know, really critical thing that happened was um, in 2005, um, I got the idea to open the blue and orange store, and this was you know pre Fiesta Bowl, um, but you know we'd had the really good season in '04 where we went to Liberty Bowl. And we were selling a lot of Boise state merchandise out of our store there at the mall, but it just was like, we didn't have enough space. Like it just felt like the Boise state fans weren't happy with our selection, but then the non-Boise state fans were coming in and being like, what's all this Boise state stuff. You know, I want the NFL stuff. So we, we struck a deal with the mall on, there was an empty space right next to our space. um, And we opened that in June, 2006 and you know, If you know the timeline, uh, Boise State... That's good timing. Goes undefeated, wins the Fiesta Bowl. I mean, it was the most perfect timing in the world from a business standpoint. And that was, you know, certainly a seminal event in my life um, because of what happened and what that led to. So
2: the Blue and Orange store, I I had no idea that you came up with that on your own. Had you seen that somewhere else? And and the Blue and Orange store is right next door to Pro Image in our Boise Mall. And so... For that spot to open up at the time it did and for you to take advantage of it, I mean, what was that story?
0: Yeah, super, super serendipitous. You know, a, a lot of it, if you remember in, in 05, um, the team, we, there was a lot of hype and excitement around the team, and we, we played our first game of the year um, at Georgia and I actually went out to that game. And uh, Jared Zabransky had six turnovers in the first half, and we just got run off the field at Georgia. And so prior to that game, you know, again, the year before, we're undefeated. We go to the Liberty Bowl. There's all this hype. Like, we were selling so much Boise State stuff out of just our Pro Image store. Then we just get run off the field at Georgia. And I remember, and I was in Georgia, and I remember flying home on Sunday, and I remember texting the, the manager kind of Sunday afternoon, and I was just like, have we sold anything today? Like, just kind of thinking, like, there's, you know, the fans are done. Like, this, this is done. And he was like, we've actually sold quite a bit of Boise State stuff today. And that was the first time the light kind of went off in my head that like, okay, we don't have to be undefeated for this to be a sustainable idea. And, you know, there is a lot of excitement, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I got the idea that fall, but we, it wasn't going to work to open it until the next year. And then I was nervous because if you remember, then Coach Hawk left after that year And so now we have a new coach unknown, you know, I know none of us knew that Chris Peterson would be the goat, right? And so, you you know, it felt very risky. And uh, in fact, it was, you know, I said that, you know, my parents and everyone always, you know, believed in what I did. This was one thing where my dad was like, I don't know if this is a good idea. And even the Pro Image franchise office, very famously, we still joke about this today, they were like, we don't think this is a good idea. Like, we don't think this will work. Um, but is, we, we opened June 1st, 2006 and, and actually did really well over the summer and the lead up to the season. But then, you know, the whole season was, you know, it was ma- magical. Pretty magical and then, and then, you know, cap, cap, you know, at the end capitalized with the Fiesta Bowl.
2: Did they say that because, you know, sports merchandising, as you well know, is so fickle yeah. in so many areas, but did they think, okay, look, college, I've heard stats about, professional jerseys and merchandising just 10 times selling more than what colleges do. And they thought, okay, well look, it's a seasonal product for the major sport of the year. And it's not going to sustain your, you're not going to be able to make costs. Is that what they were thinking? Or
0: that was exactly it. You know, uh, their thought was, yeah, this probably is successful for the football season, but how are you going to be successful kind of January through July and then, yeah, what happens if the team goes six and six? How how does that impact it? And there just there just hadn't been any track record of stores like this being successful off of college campuses. So so certainly on college campuses they are. But you're exactly right. I mean, um, you know, I, I was reading about this and talking to years ago my Nike rep, and he he was telling us that Nike in that year had sold more Peyton Manning jerseys. Than all of the college football jerseys they sold combined, so the the NFL market is much larger. The professional sports market is much larger, but you know it was a unique situation, an opportunity. You know here with with Boise State, and and then obviously we we benefited from some really good timing. Yeah,
2: and so how does the blue and orange store, the college apparel and merchandising store, compare to Pro Image? Um, I know you have a couple of those open up around the valley. Um, you know, did that grow alongside of Pro Image, just at a smaller scale, or did it kind of equal out, or how was that?
0: Yeah, I mean, there were there were multiple years where it it was our best store. You know, it outperformed all those stores. It it doesn't, you know, right now, and and you you can see the you know correlation with what's what's going on 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 the field and things. But you think about we had the Fiesta Bowl in two thousand six, but then we went through a, a four year Kellen Moore era with with three losses, um, and so it was it was really good, you know, during that time. And, uh, but, you know, it's like anything where things ebb and flow. And I I think one of the things I learned during that, and one of the things I saw, you know, when when we were in the middle of the Kellen Moore era, I was like, man, a lot of my income is dependent on Boise State football.
2: Well, and and not just Boise State, but like a twenty-one-year-old yes. quarterback, right? <laughs> yeah. So don't it did, get injured, Kellen. Don't it, get injured. Yeah.
0: It did not seem. It did not seem sustainable for the long term, which is why at that time I really started looking at how how can I diversify because at at that time you know so much of my business and income was based around just the stores and and then even more specifically the blue and orange store at that time because it was our best store and it just i looked at it and i was like this this isn't smart like this isn't sustainable like i'm gonna ride this while i can and it's been great but it's not it's not long-term sustainable it also you know is interesting as a fan because i'm a very passionate fan as as you know uh uh, it's like the double-edged thing with me though where it's like at that time you, you think back to the uh you know, when we lost that game in Nevada um, and had the chance to go, you know, to the Rose Bowl or or even the national championship game, like the impact on me as a fan was so devastating. But then there's also this business impact, like it it cost us literally like probably a million dollars in sales. And so that was pretty emotionally... Like difficult. Your highs are high, oh, and your man. lows are low. It it, it was bad. Both like sides,
2: personal and professional. So yes. this is this it is too much. This is dumb of me, but that's the first time I've ever even thought of that. I because I didn't think about it either. Yeah. Well, you know, because you think, you know, I knew it cost the school a lot. Yeah. And not only money, but you know, future implications. But I think, okay, well, if I could have sold that much Rose Bowl gear, yeah,
0: yeah, and
2: you have a month to sell it, and you just that's almost like the stock market and just thinking, oh, if I would have invested or if this would have happened. So that must have been
0: (laughs) very difficult. It was tough. I mean, that was, you know, it, so that was the day after Thanksgiving, right? right, That game. And that day we had our highest sales day that we, you know, it's black Friday, but it's also the game. And this, you know, it's a big deal. We had our highest sales we'd ever had. And then that night we'd lose And it was, it was so devastating. And, and again, like it's both, like, it's not just the financial impact. Like in a lot of ways, it actually is worse. The fan impact just because, you know, I care so much as a fan, but then you, you add the financial impact on top of it. And so that, that was a big moment as well, where I was just like, I can't, I can't live and die like this. And so I've got to, I've got to diversify into other, other things.
2: Was that difficult to get over? Yes. yes. Emotionally. I mean, it's That's, difficult yeah. for me when well, you I'll mention let, I'll
0: let yes. you know when I get over it. <laughs> I was going to say,
2: I remember that game too. I it mean, but a, in all honesty, I mean, that carries so many heavy feelings, uh, you know, yeah. of so many different things. That's fascinating
0: to me. It's, it's still like, I, I rarely bring it up because yeah. it's still so, so painful that the only thing I've kind of made it work for me in my mind is the, the fiesta bowl, and obviously we won three fiestables, which was great. But the, the 2006 fiestable against Oklahoma, that was such a miraculous yeah. outcome that I just feel like that's the counterweight, there right? There you go. Like, yeah. like we got this miracle win that was amazing and is one of the greatest games of college football history and also had the great financial impact for me. And then we had this, you know, Stomach punch of all stomach punch losses, yeah. which is so devastating to think about. That Nevada
2: game you know. was 2011. Mm-hmm. So you really you had like a six year yeah. run, and to have your business rest on somebody's right foot, <laughs> yeah. had right. to have been devastating. So 2011. Can we go back a few years because yeah. you were involved politically? Yes, in a campaign that I really want to know more about because yeah. in the 2008 election. I hear you were involved in the campaign for Mitt Romney for that side. What was that like or what what interest did you have in there? How did that all come about?
0: Yeah, no, that's great. Um, I had always been interested in politics. I mean, even back to high school, junior high, um, I I would watch presidential debates. I was into politics, used to listen to Rush Limbaugh as a kid, like just kind of wired different that way and always liked it. And the thing that attracted me to Mitt back, which, you know, Mitt's become very polarizing now, but the, the thing that attracted me to Mitt back in 07 was that he was a business guy. And I just love that here's a very successful business guy that now is going to take those principles and, and run for president. And I, I just love that and it attracted me to it. And so I, I just, uh, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know and just kind of volunteered and said that I would raise money, and looking back on it now, it's just, it's it's one of those things which is, which is true in a lot of things in life. If, if you don't know what the limitations and ceilings should be, you can outperform what those limitations and ceilings should be, right? And that was very much the case because I just believed I could go out and raise a lot of money. I since have learned and learned in being involved in politics and mentoring other people, like it's very difficult. And, but I... I just, the the fact I didn't know how hard it should be um, helped make me succeed at it. And it was, it just came along at a good time. I mean, they, you know, weren't favored to win. They didn't have tons of support. Um, I was able to be successful raising money. And so that gave me opportunities to kind of rise up in the ranks, so to speak. And this, this was a volunteer job. This wasn't like a paid position, But it benefited me some amazing opportunities, um, both for the 08 election and then, of course, you know, Mitt ran again in 2012. I was even more involved in that campaign. He got the nomination. Um, You know, I was pretty convinced he was going to win, and I was ready to to move, you know, to Washington, D.C. and and work in the administration. I never had wanted to work for the federal government, but um, just thought that would be a a once-in-a-lifetime, you know, opportunity. But a couple things that really were important for that. One is I got the chance to, you know, spend a lot of time with Mitt and, and learn from him and his family. But also, you know, Mitt attracted a lot of very successful business people. And so I got to meet and spend time with people that I would never be able to have a meeting with, you know, And I mean, I I remember one time being on a, on a bus, you know, in Boston going to an event and I, I was sitting next to Woody Johnson who owns the New York jets. And, you know, I would never be able to meet him. You know, I mean, I met Steve Wynn. I mean, I met Glenn Stearns who at the time was, uh, and is still a good friend who at the time was the the largest mortgage lender in the country. Um, You know, all these billionaires that I met, that I never could get in the same room with, and Travis Hawks yeah on the bus (laughs) I would always joke that I was the the poorest uh the the youngest and poorest person there and in fact it's a funny story I remember once being this was early on being in an event that was in Park City and I was talking to a guy and I won't I won't say who he is but he's very has a very well-known business in in Florida and I was like oh you flew out here from Florida and I said so did you you just fly you know from from Orlando to Salt Lake and he's like well, I mean, we have our own plane yeah. and we, we flew from <laughs> like our town, you know, from the my FBO. house <laughs> and that like at that time that hadn't even crossed my mind. Like I had I had like driven from, you know, Boise <laughs> to Park City and here here these guys all had private jets and, and all those things. But I, I learned some things about that from that. And one was I learned that nobody ever nobody in those situations ever was like, well, where do you go to school? you know, what's, let me see your bank statement. Like I was accepted because I was in the room, right? And so that taught me something. And then I also learned like on some level, like they're just normal people, right? They're normal people. Um, I I think that, you know, there's certain characteristics and self-belief and, and some of those things that help them to be successful, but it kind of raised my ceiling of what I felt like I could achieve. Because I think before that, I very much thought, like, hey, like, my life is going to be, like, I'm at the mall. Like, every day I wake up, I go to the mall, I sit on a bench in front of my store on my laptop and eat a pretzel and answer emails and put in orders, right? And that seems like, and that was fine. Like, that, I was making a good living. But being around all those guys for that five-year span, you know, it wasn't five straight years, but off and on for those five years, I was like, well, I can you know, I can go do other things, you know, I can do venture capital or private equity or real estate development or those things. And so uh, I loved it for um, the strategy around the politics and things like that. Uh, I never got into it because of the networking. But I learned that there was great networking and great lessons learned by doing that. And so it was it was a phenomenal experience from that standpoint.
2: And so were you more involved in the 2012 election than the 2008?
0: Yeah, and especially because it just went a lot longer, right? I mean, I was pretty involved in 08 as oh, well. Oh, because but, he
2: didn't go far enough in 08 Yeah, because in get 12,
0: there. he won the, the primary yeah. and so went all the way through the primary and then all the way to, you know, November of 12. I mean, I went to the – I mean, one of the coolest things I've ever done is I went to the debate, the first debate between Romney and Obama, yeah. and it was in Colorado, and I'm there in the room. I mean, 10 feet from President Obama – and I was like, this is incredible. And it's very hard to get into the debates. Like, it's it's very hard. And so being in there and having... I mean, I had some uh, experiences like that that are amazing. I, I actually got to meet President Bush when he was the president. After Mitt had lost in 08, he did a fundraiser for uh, John McCain, who was the nominee. And it was at Mitt's home in Park City. And I was able to go to that. And I was able to meet George Bush. Uh, and uh, classic uh, line was, I went up to him. And it's it was just... It was just it was outside on this little balcony and the only people on the balcony were me, president Bush, and then a secret service agent. It was really cool. And I put out my hand and I said, I'm Travis Hawks and I'm from Idaho. And he looked at me and he said, my name's George Bush and I'm from Texas. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) So, So super cool experiences along the way, you know, being able to, to do things like that, ride in, you know, I got a ride in the, uh, motorcade, um, you know, when Mitt was the nominee and he'd come out to Boise and things. So there was, there was lots of cool things like that that I'll never forget.
2: So, I mean, that could really
0: change your trajectory for sure. I was ready to move to DC. Like what, I said. Did, what did you want to do in DC?
2: I mean, uh, department of interior or no. treasury Because <laughs> so what, so what the joke, I have to say this, the joke was we're like, Oh, Travis is going to be the diplomat of Fiji. Like if Mitt wins, he's going to go be like the Cayman Islands diplomat.
0: So, so yeah, the ambassador, right? So, so, so that was, that, that was appealing. Like the idea of being an ambassador and I, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I was still, you know, fairly young to be an ambassador, so I don't know if that could have happened. But that would have been cool if I if I could go to a place like Fiji, yeah,
2: <laughs> um, or or like, but not Siberia or no, like. No, I don't think it's no. a country, but or, or somewhere. So, you know, I didn't want to go up in that range.
0: I didn't want to go somewhere too dangerous. Either. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So so yeah, that could have been a possibility. What what I had thought about in my mind was, you know, is there something on a small business front that that I could have done? Could I have been involved in the you know, small business administration to go out and help small business owners and take what I had kind of learned to be helpful. And I, who knows, who knows if, I mean, the federal government is the federal government. So it's very possible I would have hated it. Um, But, and again, I never wanted to do it. It was never a goal, but I was just like, this is, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity where, you know, if he wins, like I know the president, like I have a, like, he knows my name. Like, I have a personal relationship with the president and have the opportunity to go work in the administration. And so I talked with my wife, and, you know, we had uh, three three younger kids at home, but we had just decided we would do it because it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And we, we said we'd go for two years um, and then see how we like it. But we'd go for at least two years and and then determine from that. And, you know, if, if you look at, like, October – you know, kind of pre-Hurricane Sandy, like I was very convinced um, that we were going to win. And in my mind, I was like, we're moving to Washington DC in January. And yeah, that would have been a completely different career path and life path from what happened otherwise. Right. Side
2: note, the Hurricane Sandy, Chris Christie, Obama meeting In the circles you were talking about, that really had a big effect in the – or was that just sort of –
0: It did. I mean, we knew at the time that the the hurricane had really hurt for a lot of reasons. The the Chris Christie thing, the Obama just having a chance to look presidential. But then also, in a very critical time, you couldn't campaign. We couldn't go have events. Couldn't go – I mean, it was was like looked on as in bad taste to – you know, go be out campaigning when this horrible thing was happening. Uh, And especially because it's happening in the East where, you know, so much media attention is. So yeah, we knew in the moment that it was, uh, it, it had hurt us. So I have so many thoughts
2: about this because I mean, you went from owning multiple stores to potentially a government job in (laughs) Washington, DC. And, you know, which could have been a blessing in disguise because the bureaucracy just the of, connections, right? Yeah, the connections for sure. But, you know, if, if you're going from eating Wetzel pretzels, by the way, which yeah. is an incredible pretzel. Unbelievable. Every day. And then going to D.C. and working in a structure that really you you have much less influence than you did in yes. your day-to-day job would be stifling, yes. right? But a new challenge. But then you almost have a buy-in to that and you're thinking you're going to win and you're kind of getting your family ready to move and then they lose, and you sort of have to what, go back to eating Wetzel pretzels at Pro Image, right? I mean,
0: yeah. So it, it was interesting because I, I would say prior to that second campaign, and if you so so you mentioned Brandon uh, earlier who who still works for me and actually now has uh, equity ownership in the stores, and then there's another guy Clay. The, the two of those guys both started working for me in 2006, and they, they run the stores. They, they run all the operations. Prior to that campaign, I was very much more of a micromanager. I mean, I hated to be gone. When I was gone, I would check in with them a bunch. I remember going on a cruise, and I, I literally rented – This is you start. some of my disorders will come out when I tell you this. I literally rented a satellite phone um, because I just wanted to be able to check in a couple times a day to make sure everything was okay, like completely insane. But that's how I was. When I got really deeply busy and involved with the campaign, like I had to, I had to sacrifice that, right? I had to walk away from that and I had to, um, trust those guys to, to go out and, and run things and, and they did fine. Like it was fine. And so I always kind of joke that, you know, I, I was in Boston, um, the night of the election, we lost, that was devastating. I flew home the next day. Uh, you know, whatever went into work the next day, and like nothing had burned down, like everything was fine. So that that experience actually really helped me because it helped me to understand an experience that I could delegate and that I could trust them to do it, and it would be fine without me there on a on a daily basis. And so that the campaign, like all that was transformative for those two reasons. One, because it, it, it opened up my eyes to, I could have a higher ceiling and accomplish more. And then secondly, I knew I didn't have to, to be at the mall every day and I could, I could let this, the stores go into their hands. And so then I was, you know, kind of at this crossroads of like, you know, what, what do I go do? And it's, it's so great that that happened. Because I think otherwise, um, you know, I might have just pigeonholed myself of just being a, a retail, you know, retail guy and at the mall, and not been able to do all the things I'm doing now.
2: So you're rebuilding your life. 2012. Yes. <laughs> your emotional this is life. Be
0: the teaser. You're rebuilding your life. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's gone. <laughs> Everything's in shambles. <laughs> <laughs> but um,
2: uh, what was your? How long did it take to recover from that? And then what was your? vision i mean what did you do moving forward because that was 2012 i guess november 2012 so we're moving into 2013 a lot of stuff has changed on the boise state football front things are changing there you just went this through this incredible experience politically that could have changed your life but then ended up you know not changing i guess your family's life as far as locations and so you sort of had to make new plans
0: yeah, I mean it Or if,
2: adjust your target. It or?
0: very much was a uh, you know, a crossroads and, and honestly like a difficult time because you you know, well, let's let's keep in mind the the missed field goal against Nevada and the election loss. November no, one year apart, right? Like so PTSD. It's November of eleven, November <laughs> so, of twelve. So and so November's a bad month. November's it, a tough month for Travis. It very much was just like I felt like, you know, I, I hadn't recovered from either of those yeah. things. And and it was difficult but um, ultimately, I I set down a path that I had really always envisioned, like even from the time I was younger, of just like wanting to be involved in multiple things, um, wanting to have kind of multiple streams of income, diversification, as well as I always had this funny idea, like even you know when I was probably in high school, of Like, it'd be so cool if I could help, you know, kind of enrich my friends and people around me, you know, and so, you know, going down this path of taking, like, investor money and kind of just, you know, putting deals together. Um, I also had a ton of, uh, you know, relationships from the political world, the donor world, um, you know, all of that. And so, uh, one, you know, I was doing multiple things at that time, kind of starting in 2013. But one of those things is we started a firm, uh, Riverwood Strategies. Uh, one of my good friends from the campaign, who's originally from Idaho, uh, Todd Cranny, he moved back to Boise and we started that firm with the idea that we could, you know, go out and and utilize a lot of these uh, political and donor connections we had to do things, whatever those things were. And, and that was great. And that, that business, uh, is still thriving. I'm not involved in it anymore. Cause it just kind of got to be too much, um, with the, the capital 11 and venture capital things and things that got capital out alone as that stuff got too big. I wasn't being fair, you, you know, to, to Todd and to that group. And so I sold out my interest to Todd, um, a few years ago, but, um, you know, that was good and kept me connected to a lot of those people, continued to open doors, um, you know, to, to mentors. and
1: Is this like consulting? Like what does this mean?
0: Yeah, so we did, I mean, we did political campaigns. We did uh, PR work. We did business consulting, you know, all those types of things. Todd's background was all on the political side, the campaign side. So really those, you know, those strategic, you know, that strategic blood he really had. I was most interested in it from a business side um and so having those clients that were businesses and how could we how how could we help them um navigate kind of political issues um for their for their business and it was great we we had a ton of fun doing that um but i was i was very clear with todd when we started that of like hey i'm I'm not like hundred percent doing this. Like I'm part of this and I'm a partner in this, but I'm also going to start and do some of these other things. And this is what I want to do. Um, and it was around that same time uh, that we started capital auto loan, uh, which circles back to the car business. I'd always been kind of most interested in the financing side of the car business. And so me and a different partner, my partner, um, who's at capital uh, 11 with me, uh, David Gardner, we started capital auto loan that same year in 2013 And with the idea to be really small, we were just going to grow it to a few employees and a million dollar portfolio and work with a handful of dealers. And fast forward to today, you know, we have 45 employees in that business. We operate in Idaho, Utah, Montana, and Arizona. So if you look back to 2013 and kind of coming out of the, you know, the shambles of all that, you know, all the things like, it, it was like the seedlings of all the things I'm involved in now, like, started Riverwood started capital auto loan capital 11 already existed to kind of formalize some of these side investments that me and Dave were doing but we started to spend more time on that started to do some real estate projects started to do some of those types of things and you know that that's that all of those decisions um, started us on the path um, that's led to where we're at now which is you know obviously those things being the primary focus
1: I want to so Travis, you're um finished the election. Now the retail stores are doing well. Could you have stayed with them and had a good life?
0: Sure. Yeah. yeah. A good life, sure. I mean, I, I don't know, a fulfilled life, maybe not.
1: That's what I want to get into. Like yeah. what was the what do you feel like besides you had seen these other very successful people on the campaign. Now do you feel like it was just finance? No one's going to say it was just financially motivated, yeah. probably. But that's the interesting question. Fulfill, what drove you? That's a lot. You're like, okay, I know. In fact, you go into Riverside Strategy? Riverwood. Riverwood. Yeah. You go into Riverside Strategy. And you already knew, I'm going to be doing other things here. Yeah. What was driving you?
0: Yeah. So so let me just add one thing in that's that's important is, you know, we also, in between that Fiesta in 2013, we go through the Great Recession, right? And so even though we had some some great football teams going on like there was a change there was a change in retail there was a change in spending you know i i you know I, one of the things i i did wisely is when we had that uh enormous windfall from the fiesta bowl in 2006 is i kept most of the money set aside um i for the first time ever um bought a car, like bought a nice car. BMW? BMW? No. Oh, still not a BMW. I bought a, I bought a Tahoe and that was the first time I'd ever spent a lot of money on a car. But otherwise I just kind of kept all the money in the business, which turned out to be a, a great decision because I mean, we, we lost money in, you know, some of those years during the great recession and we never laid anyone off, and we just kind of tried to maintain, but, but it was a difficult time. So so that, and then again, you, you know, back to, you, you know, that that idea of, like, I can't have everything dependent on Boise State football, but also I didn't want everything dependent just on retail because, you know, we were already starting to see some of the writing on the wall with um, Internet like and Amazon, e-commerce. Amazon mm-hmm. and e-commerce and, and and those types of things. And so all that was kind of floating around my mind. Um, I, I think that, you know, but, but kind of back to your question, it, it wasn't, it, it really wasn't like wealth. Like I just want to do all these things to create wealth. It's, it's for me that the drive is always just like, it's the thrill, it's the thrill of the the building and the execution. And that's like, that's just who I am. Like, that's just what people ask me what my hobbies are. And it's like, I don't have hobbies, because this is just what I do. (laughs) Like, this is my hobby. And so um, it it really was that and it was and so I think on some level, I was bored with just saying, like, I'm just gonna, you know, do this mall retail. And yeah, I certainly wanted to diversify financially and, and be sure I could provide for my family. But also, a lot of it was just like, what can I go out and create? What can I go out and create and build? And I've, I've also been I was also passionate about creating jobs. And so that was a thing that I love. Like, can I go out and start businesses, build businesses, and, you know, create jobs, create wealth for others, create wealth for myself? Like, all of those things is, is what drives me. And so that's why I knew I wanted to do multiple things. And, I mean, I want to do more things than I have capacity for. And I think that that's honestly why... I ended up getting into venture capital because it's a way to be involved in more things without having all the bandwidth it usually takes. Right. Like I, I mean, I, I think it's, I don't know if it's a sickness or a disorder or a blessing or what it is, but like I, I want to be involved in a lot of things. And, and I, anytime I'm somewhere, I'm thinking about like, what is the business opportunity around this? And, and I'll give you a great example that just shows how crazy I am. Uh, during COVID, so, so I'm, I really like cookies. This is a thing about me. I like cookies. And during COVID, uh, Brandon and Clay called me one day, and they said, hey, the Mrs. Fields in the mall is gone. Like, they just, like, moved out in the middle of the night. Like, they're just out. Immediately, no pause. I was like, okay. I was like, you need to call. You need to go talk to the mall leasing people. You need to get in there. You need to see what kind of equipment is left. You need to see what kind of rent we can get. Like, we're going op- to open a cookie store in there. And, and, and those guys who just know me, like, they didn't even question it. They were like, all right, like, we're on it. And then, you know, 24 hours went by, and I was kind of sitting there. I was like, why would I open a cookie store? Like, that's so nonsensical. Like, I have so much stuff going on. There's so much growth opportunity in these other things that are going on. Like, why would I open a cookie store? But that's immediately where my mind went, was like, oh, my gosh, the cookie store from the mall is gone. There's no cookie store there. Well, I can open a cookie store. Like, let's go open a cookie yeah. store. And there's there's tons of uh, examples of things like that. Wait, did that,
1: where's the cookie store now? Is it, <clears throat> didn't go? Still empty. We didn't, we
2: didn't do well, was Chip around? I mean, were the other cookie it was just competitors? Got, yeah,
0: that stuff was just starting. And so, I mean, it's gotten pretty saturated now. But um, You could have been the first. Well, I well. I... I feel like I mess I messed up not being like a early Crumble franchisee because yes. I love Crumble yeah, yeah. and when I first saw Crumble I was like oh this is like a marketing company that sells cookies I'm like I <laughs> right. get it and I, I should have gone and done that but but that's just kind of how I am like if I'm out of town and and at a restaurant you know a chain restaurant that we don't have in Boise I'm like I could I could open this I could open this in Boise like it's just it's just how my mind works it's it's a, it's a complete disorder
2: so going back to 2013. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the timing was actually pretty good for for when you started to diversify and going to, excuse me, getting involved in other companies because there was really an economic boom.
1: Started to come back up. Yeah.
2: Yeah. For that seven or eight years. And so until COVID, which COVID could have affected your businesses in one way or the other. But I mean, it was a good time for Capital Eleven and the auto group. Um, I mean that must have been a successful feeling at the time looking back in 2020 before COVID hit if you were to look and size up all of the different things that was a a good build
0: absolutely yeah I mean that seven years from where we were to where we went in those seven years was was great Um, you know it was it took a lot of work and uh, it wasn't easy uh, but we kept we kept grinding and kept doing it. And, and by 2020, I mean, going into COVID, we, we were at a great place. We had really grown the auto business. We, we, we for, for five years, really that business was built on our own money and investors money. Um, but at the end of 2019, uh, we were able to, to get a, a bank um, to come in and provide us a lot of capital for what we were doing. And so that just gave us the opportunity to really accelerate our growth So that was a big deal. And then, you know, back on the retail side, we had, um, we we just, at at this time, just had the the local stores in Boise and Meridian and Nampa. And we had kind of started to see this opportunity, consolidation of competitors, uh, increased mall vacancy, et cetera. And so kind of pre-COVID, even though a lot of people were talking about um, death of retail, um, we we decided we were going to expand those those stores, and that's when you know we, we provided the opportunity for Brandon and Clay to be uh, equity you know owners in that, and we said we're going to go open stores in other markets, and kind of started you know started that. So there was a lot going on um, during that time, and and definitely going into 2020, it felt like man, this is this is going to be you know the peak of the mountain from an opportunity standpoint. The Capital Auto.
2: Um, I guess I'm curious when the retail, was Capital Auto, as far as the income that you would bring in from that, was that a growing portion or percentage of your whole pie? Or was the retail always leading? Or how did that change?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, when we started it, we took no money for, for multiple years. And, and we were luck- luckily in the in the situation where we could do that because Dave Dave had other things he was doing. I had other things I was doing. And so we could just reinvest everything. And, and that helped a lot. Um, But yeah, I mean, definitely by 2020, the, you know, the Capital Eleven Enterprise was much bigger and much larger part of my income than than the retail side.
2: And Capital Eleven includes the Capital Auto. So it's like a holding company for a few different operations. Yes. Does it include Pro Image too?
0: Um, So what uh, the, the original four stores that are here in Boise, I own those 100%. Um, we've, we've since in the last few years opened 17 stores um, in Washington, Oregon, Montana, Alaska, etc. Those stores um, are owned, Capital Eleven owns basically 80% of those, of those stores. So I kind of looked at that and, and we felt like it was a great investment from a Capital Eleven standpoint. Really like the thesis of doing this. But also, like, didn't want to tell my business partner, like, hey, I've got this great idea that I'm going to go do, but I'm going to kind of exclude you from it, yeah. even though it's going to take up a bunch of my time and, you know, resources and things. So I asked him if he wanted to partner on that, and he did, and And then our operators came in, and so that's kind of how that okay. works. So everything kind of rolls up now.
1: Now, I'm really curious I'm let's break it down a few ways, but I would love interest of percentage wise of like revenue income coming to you. Like what would be the breakdown first of the original four stores versus capital 11, like percentage wise,
0: like right now you mean? Yeah. Um, I, I think at this point, capital 11 is, is probably, I don't know, 70%.
1: Okay. Now let's go into capital 11. Yeah. And let's break down the retail versus the lending. Yeah, the financing, um, and not even take into account like the, because the seed investments, the angel investments, those probably take us, you know, those can be like five year payoffs, yeah. five to 10 to 20 year payoffs. Yep. Um, so if we just look at the financing versus the retail, what's the percentage breakdown there?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the, the lending has, has been great. And a lot of that we're still reinvesting, like a lot of that, like all the stuff we're doing in venture, like we're taking profits from the lending business and putting into that. But we, I mean, retail, we had a great year last year. I mean, it was a, it was kind of our best year we've ever had on the retail side, uh, which no one would have expected based on everything. And, and we've grown a lot. So it's, it's been a great investment. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the auto loan business is bigger, but I, percentage wise, I'd have to take a harder look. And it's, it's a little nuanced because of what's being reinvested. Versus sure. Yeah.
1: Spending. I mean, and I, again, the question was, you know, personal income to you, which, you know, at this point probably you could even say very little from both because you're reinvesting into retail Yeah. and the financing is, you know, getting reinvested into the, uh, the investments. Uh, so I'm just kind of curious, what, what was your gut say? Do you think about 50, 50 or is it? I guess I'm questioning, is it like 90, 10 or is it closer to 50, 50?
0: I'd say, you know, more like that 70, 30, 70, 30 range. Yeah. Can we
2: go back and talk about COVID? Sure. With retail because that I'm sure affected your business. Sure. Uh, Was the mall shut down?
0: It was. Yeah. So our mall here was shut down for a month. Um, We had stores in Seattle and those malls were shut down for two months. Um, how'd that go? <laughs> you know, it was, it was crazy because you, you kind of feel like, oh, we're, we, we we have planned for everything, yeah. right? You've, you have these business contingencies and, and, you know, because we have investors, um, in the auto loan portfolios and real estate things and stuff like we're always talking about, I mean, we have, we have disclosure documents, right? PPMs that list all of the risks, the potential risks. There's, there's nothing in those documents about a pandemic. Like it was just something like none of us had ever considered, And when it first was happening, I was like, this, this isn't going to be like a long-term thing. Like it can't be like, it just didn't make any sense to me. And I remember that, that night when, uh, you know, the famous night when Tom Hanks got COVID and then they also shut down the NBA and I was so mad that sports was being shut down, but it still, I still just thought this was like going to go on for a few weeks, you know? Um, so it was, it was, I would say it was very disorienting. And when, when the, when the malls were shut down and it was just really unclear when they would reopen, it was just, it was very disorienting. And, uh, you know, we, we also were dealing with a lot of concerns on the auto loan business because, um, you know, if, if, everybody loses their jobs. Like they're not going to be able to make payments yet. We want to be empathetic to that. And I mean, we, we know the situation. So, you know, it's a difficult time. Um, you know, we, uh, y- you know, we felt confident we could kind of fight our way through it. But I, I think that, I think if I'd known on the front side, how long some of those things would go on, like that would have been really disheartening. And I think part of what got me through was always kind of thinking like we're a couple of weeks away from things being back to normal. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was horrible for retail, um, not only because we were closed, but even when we reopened, um, it was not normal, you know, for, for a long time. Uh, ultimately, uh, you know, w- we were fortunate, especially here in Idaho and the other markets we're in on the auto loan business, you know, those markets bounce back. Really quickly from a employment standpoint, so we we didn't have a lot of adverse effect to our loan portfolio, and on the retail side, you know, it was it was strange. The malls worked with us on some you know rent relief and things, and uh, we never would have guessed the the strength that would come out of it, though. Um, meaning, and and we're we're paying for it now with with inflation, but. The combination of all the stimulus money combined with I think people just getting sick of being at home and ordering stuff online like there was actually this kind of return to like going out and going to malls and stores in the village and places like this so you know we went through this time of, of closures then to this time of low cells then to this time of just explosion um, of cells so, it was interesting and it was it was also interesting just to operating businesses in multiple states and counties and cities like you really see the differences of of how people operate and and just you never really had considered how much some of those really kind of local people can impact your business. It was it was frustrating. I was you know, I was very passionately against businesses being shut down because I was, I was kind of like, why, I mean, Lowe's was never shut down, right? Like, like the, the list of businesses that could be open versus be closed. Like it's, it's either like everyone has to be closed other than maybe like a grocery store because of safety or like, let's let people decide. And so it, it was a frustrating time. And I was, I was very frustrated that, um, you know, we were, we were forced by, by government to be shut down yet home depot and and walmart you know could operate
2: normally yeah and not only that i'm sure they had to in, improve i mean with everybody at home home improvement sales probably went up and so i definitely get that aspect of it um moving forward looking forward what are your plans for the retail side, do you want to grow it until infinity, pass off to your kids, sell it off, divest yourself from it? I mean, what are your plans on that aspect and on the auto group? I mean, what are your plans moving forward?
0: Yeah. So I think some of that's TBD. I mean, I'm, you know, 46 and, and, you know, still, I mean, I, I don't, I don't view There's nothing about like quote retirement that's attractive to me. Like I, I certainly would like to get into a position where it's easier for me to, you know, leave for three or four weeks if that's what I wanted to do and, and take some more time off. But, you know, I'll always want to be active and involved in, in the business. So I'm not I don't have some kind of artificial, you know, timeline of, of trying to exit things, you know, with the retail side, like we we see a lot of opportunity we will continue to grow. Um, there's a limit, I think, just because it starts to be too much for for our team you know, to, to manage and get too spread out. And I think the, you start to get diminishing results if you get too spread out. So we may take that up to, you know, maybe 30 stores and, and maybe stop around there. Uh, I think there's still a lot of growth opportunity in the auto loan business. Um, and then, you know, we're, we're super passionate on the, you know, again, on the venture capital things. And that's, I think that will lead to a lot of, of opportunities. And we, again, we feel like we're in this window right now um, with with it being undersaturated on capital, so we're we're just really running hard um, right now on that. So I think that in the short term, it's it's probably run faster. I think that in a few years, it's it's maybe start to you know slow down a little bit, um, but just keep evolving. And I, I think one thing I've I've definitely learned is you've you've gotta you've gotta evolve right. And so if you had asked me. You know, in 2012, 10 years ago, what I was going to do for the next 10 years, I couldn't have laid out what's happened, right? I mean, there's, in general concepts, the diversification and things, but, you know, I wouldn't have been able to lay it out. I feel like we've we've responded to market opportunities and opportunities that we have, and I think that's what we'll do for the next 10 years, and that will... I, I think that we, we just try and be really open-minded um, on... What that looks like is so that we can react to the market and react to the opportunities versus say this is what we're going to do and let's let's force it in there because then i think you can end up making mistakes um if that makes sense and, and as far as the the larger part of your question i mean i i don't know um i have two daughters and a son um my my oldest is um about to graduate from from school to be a school teacher uh you know, my son to date has, has never worked for me. He's wanted to kind of carve his own path and not be kind of the boss's son, but we'll see, you know, we'll see when he's done with school, kind of what he wants to do. Um, I think the nice thing is we have enough things going on that it's, it's not just like, there's, there's one business that you've got to kind of figure out, you know, it could be could be a piece of, of this over here or, or or whatever. And including all the companies we invest in, you know, could be opportunities there. Um, And then, you know, we have a great team. I think that, you you know, they worry, I think about us exiting, right? Like they worry about like, well, are you guys just going to build this up and sell it? Cause that, what, what does that mean for all of us? And they're, they're as much a part of our success as, as I am, And, and so I'm sensitive to that. And, you know, our team, everyone on our team's younger than me. And I mean, we, we want to, we want to make it great for everybody. And I think ultimately we have the, the the capability to, maybe it gets passed on to some of those people, you know, over time if, if we want to exit it. So we'll see, but we're, we're having like a lot of fun, even though it's, it's taxing at times and, and just, have, we've been able to attract and retain really good people. And so that makes it all, that makes it all work.
2: Okay. A couple of questions for yeah. me, just to end, just to, to follow up. So looking back, what would you do different?
0: Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> it's, that's, it's hard because I, I struggle with, with one thing. And that is, I mean, you guys kind of called it out that like I was off and running really fast, right? Like while I was in college, I was already kind of, you know, growing this business, starting the business, et cetera. Um, And and I think, I mean, I was really drawn and driven to do that. So I, I don't feel like that was the wrong thing to do, but there are some times I look back and I'm like, man, like what if I had gone and lived in New York for a year you know, and just had, like, a completely different experience, or what if I, I mean, I feel like I was in such a hurry to get to my career, like, I didn't even really want to go to college, I did, and I graduated, but I didn't really want to go, I was in such a hurry to start my career, um, that I feel like I missed out on a little phase of life, and i i don't know i i don't know if i would do it differently but that is one thing that i think about sometimes um and that i've told my kids like this is the one one time in your life that you you know you can go work at disney world or you can you know go live in new york or go live in california or whatever you know before you kind of have a a career and a a family you know so that's one thing i think about certainly i've paid lots of mistakes and, and we haven't got into this at all, but I just want to be really clear. Like I have started multiple businesses that failed and, uh, but, but I wouldn't take those experiences away because of what I've learned from them. And you hear that all the time. And it's very true. Like you learn a lot in your failures. Um, so I, I have been far from perfect. I've made a lot of mistakes. Um, you know, in business, but I think that all those things have helped me to get to where I'm at. So I, I don't, I, I don't look back on business decisions and say, Oh, I'd go back and do that differently because the failure helped. The, the only, the other thing I'd say, maybe I would do a little differently is I, I wish I would have started the auto loan business earlier because it was, it's kind of low hanging fruit for me with relationships. And it just, it's, been a really good business. And so sometimes I'm like, man, I should have started that five years earlier than I did.
2: Did, Does your brother still own Hawks Motors? He does. Yep. And you guys are in good terms and everything and very
0: good terms. Yeah.
2: Um, so a couple more things from my end. Um, you know, you give out a lot of consultation and advice and inspiration to people on different platforms that you're on. If you're looking at somebody in college or coming out of college, that's that looks to you and says, I want to be just like Travis. You know, I want to do what he did. I want to be successful like he did or like he is. What would you say to them? Like, what would be your counsel?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if that's the best path for them. I mean, first of all, I think you've, I mean, I, you know, I don't know that I have the best like work life balance. And so I don't know if that's what to aspire to. I think everyone's different, so they've got to kind of figure out what's what's best for for them. But just as advice on uh, you know going down a path and being successful, I think that what, what's very underrated is a couple things. One is just the power of of the network and networking with people, and just just meeting people and and building relationships with people. I think I think some people kind of meet someone or, or have a relationship and they kind of determine in their mind, can this be helpful to me? And if not, they kind of don't want to invest in it and they kind of move on. And I think that's really short-sighted because you never know when that equation changes. And so that relationship that you build for multiple years, it, it may may be beneficial to you in the future. Plus, you can always learn along the way. So I think that that's one thing. I think a, a huge thing that's of critical importance is to just treat any job or opportunity or relationship you have like it's the most important thing. And there's there's lots of examples I've seen of this. I mentioned Clay, who's, who's one of my partners on the stores. When we hired him, we hired him as a temporary employee for Christmas. And I told him, this is back when I was doing the interview, and I said, we have no job for you after Christmas. He said, okay. It would have been very easy for him to, to kind of do the minimum required to just not get fired, knowing there's no future in the company. Right. But he came in and absolutely killed it to the point that I was like, I can't let this guy go. I'll, I'll figure out a way to keep him. And, and now the guy is my business partner. Right. And he he never walked into that mall store with the idea that I want to do this for the rest of my life. And that's the thing. You just you just don't know. There's a, there's a guy that who, who runs our sales um, in Utah for the auto loan business. I first met him when he was 16 years old. And he came up to me. He looked me in the eye. He introduced himself, asked me what I did, asked about myself. And I was so impressed with him as a 16-year-old kid. I was like, hey, where do you work? I was like, do you want to work for me at my store at the village? And so he went to work there as a 16-year-old kid, did a great job. Fast forward to five or six years later, um, I reach out to him, know he lives in Utah and said, Hey, Jake, would you have any interest in, in, uh, you know, being our, ourselves? And it's a great job. I mean, it's a great income for him as a, I don't know how old he is, 25, 26 year old guy. But that only happened because as a 16 year old kid he was impressive and invested in relationships. And then when he got that opportunity to work at at the village, which, again, he didn't want to work there the rest of his life, but he was great, which then set the opportunity for him to have the job later. So I think that that's a a thing people miss all the time is if you just go out and you treat relationships and opportunities and jobs like that, good good things will happen to you. And then the last thing I'd say is, I mean just just be nice, like just be a nice, kind, good person to people and and good things you know good things will happen. One of the things we always talk about with all of our capital eleven deals is always creating like the win win so that when the deal ends, everyone looks around us like everyone feels good about it, everyone was treated fairly, and I think too many people are kind of like, man, like if i can if I can <sighs> get an extra couple you know, pieces of this deal to benefit me, like that's just me being a good negotiator. And that's just me, you know, doing best for myself. And you see people all the time that get to the other side of a deal. And they're like, man, I never want to work with that person again, like that wasn't enjoyable. So I think it's critical to be the, the opposite of that. And all those things matter. Like I could, I could tell you stories for hours about, you know, decisions and ways people acted years ago, impacting things now. So, so those are some of the advice I would give to people. Good advice for sure. You
2: mentioned college a, a, a bit back. Jordan and I often argue about college and the value of college at the moment. And, you know, if it's worth investing your time and money and efforts into it, what are your thoughts on?
0: Yeah, so I'm mostly not in. Um, I, think <laughs> that, I think that for sure I'm very against, like, people having a lot of debt you know, to get through college. Like, I think it's your, if you do the math on it, like it's, it's taking you so long to pay that off. Like, I just, I think that that doesn't make sense. Um, I think that for most people, it doesn't matter where you go to school, you know? So this idea that it needs to be this really high achieving, more expensive school. I mean, yeah, if you want to go be a, a investment banker in New York, then it matters. But I think for, for most jobs now, it doesn't matter. And then I think it just depends on what you want to do and what your skill set is. So I mentioned my daughter wants to be a school teacher. She has to go to college because she wants to be a school teacher. That's the only way you can do that, right? And so for her, it makes sense. My son, you know, I've told him, like, I don't I don't think he should graduate from college because he has really good skills, um, people skills and sales skills and things like that. And I think he can be successful without that unless he wants to go be a doctor or something. And so if, if you want to be a CPA or a doctor, obviously you don't have a choice. And if you have, but if you have those skills, like I could, the, the people who I hire, I could care less. I could care less if they graduated from college or where they graduated from college or what their grades were, you know, other than like my CPA or my lawyer, right? Like I could care less. It's more about what's your experience and what, what can you do? And I just think you're better off going and, being an intern, going and getting on with a company, getting that real-world experience during that time, I think you're better off for the most part. And then the only other thing I'll say is just, if you are going to go to college, like, you just, there's got to be a plan because if you're if you're coming out of college with a weird, you know, degree, like, it's, it's literally not help, helpful, you know. And I think for someone going into business, I mean, there's benefit. Um, but I think now more than ever, that benefit is available to you outside of college, right? Like when I was a kid, like there was no online resources to go and learn what P and L's are all about, but you can learn so much of that independently. Now, I think more than ever, employers are looking for skills and experience versus a piece of paper, Yeah, but that's not a popular opinion with everybody. And, and it's not a one size fits all answer because you know, for some kids it is the best decision and also I think we've lost track that for some kids like go to a go to a technical school go learn how to be a a, a, an electrician I mean there's a lot of rich electricians you know who have all the work they want and that's a skill that they can just go learn you know that's a lot better in my opinion than going and getting like a humanitarian degree with fifty thousand dollars in debt oh my gosh yeah yeah The, the system's Broken, which is a longer conversation. But yeah, I just say have a plan and be careful. And if, if you have those, those sales and operations and people skills, any or all of those, go to work, man. There's so many people looking for, for you. Like you can go to work. I, I'll tell you one other thing, real quick. There's a kid who I hired, very similar to the other one, who just was really impressed. He was actually a friend of, of my son's in high school. And I hired him at our office. He still works at our office. He's going to school at Boise State, and he works for us part-time. In his first semester of school, I went to him, and I said, listen, I think you should drop out of school, and I'll pay you this much, and there's a pathway for you to make this much um, if, if, you, if you perform, which I believe you will. I believe you have the skills to do it, and I don't think you need school. And I mean, he could not have been more shocked and then I think when he went and talked to his parents, they were like, this guy.
1: You need to quit. To this quit. Guy. Get guy. out
0: of there. He's the devil. Yes. Uh-huh. And so he didn't quit school. He's still going to school. He's working for us part-time, which is fine. Like, like he's decided that's what's best for him. He is going to be, I just know, I can tell with that kid, I could tell it at 17 years old, he's going to be very successful. And he doesn't need college to be very successful. But it may help him depending on, does he want to go work in corporate America and there are certainly jobs that still have that as requirement, although that's becoming less and less.
1: Sure.
2: I think no, we we talk about it a lot. It's difficult to replace the social aspect of it, but the the skills and experience and the tech the what you gain from it is certainly diminished as the cost goes up and continues yeah, to that's increase. The big thing is our right
1: that cost goes up and then you have to really just evaluate how much you're paying. Yeah. And but I mean think about four years not working full time. Or doing something. Yeah, there's a cost of is opportunity it, there. Yeah. opportunity cost plus the actual cost of tuition. Yeah. Yep. Living, yeah. For sure. Any other questions? No, that's it. Travis, that was awesome. Yeah, Travis, great to have you. It's this, Again, that's everyone. This is the Founders Pod. We had Travis Hawks in here with us. And if you want to learn more about what he's doing now, Capital11.com. That can be 11 the number or 11 the word. And uh, we appreciate having you, Travis. This was great.
0: Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks.
1: Thanks for listening to The Founders Podcast. Be sure to follow the host on Twitter. Search at George B. Hansen and at Brandon Minard to discuss more. Also, be sure to visit thefounderspod.com to join the conversation,
0: access the show notes, and discover our fantastic bonus content.